I'm going to have to sit back and listen quite a bit this morning because um, Mitzeswaf Weinberg and The Passenger is the first, I believe, of his seven operas, uh, have passed me by. Um, I'm unusually not familiar at all with any of his music, although I've heard the name pop up now and again. Um, fill us in a little bit on the story of how you first encountered him and, and the opera. Well, it's actually a very sort of banal incident, really. Um, but to give a little bit of background, um, what happened, and one of the reasons why you haven't heard of him, um, at the end, when the Soviet Union broke up, um, the big sort of monopolistic publishing houses were also sold off. And in that process, a large part of Weinberg ended up with Sikorsky, who had a quasi-monopoly on music from that part of the world and a tendency to ignore anything that they can't immediately see a profit sign against. And so a whole swathe of Weinberg just disappeared into Sikorsky's cellar. By chance, another bit of uh, Weinberg fell into the hands of um, another publisher in Hamburg, or Peer Music. It was actually rather a go-ahead American firm, Peer, a family firm, in fact. And grandfather Peer um, started by collecting bluegrass music, walking around Kentucky. And it's basically a pop music publishing house, but they have a classical wing in Hamburg, and they got this material and started to do something and they produced a little A4 leaflet that presumably was sent around to every opera house in Europe mm-hmm. uh, which spoke about you know, Weinberg, Friend of Shostakovich, Auschwitz opera and so on and seemingly mine was the only way to pick a basket in which it did not end up <laughs> um, and so having sort of received this leaflet having sort of hung around on my desk for a while as those things do and then I, <clears throat> I started to inquire about this guy Weinberg, and I discovered that actually there is a remarkable quantity of his music that is recorded. I mean, first of all, there is a vast amount of music, 27 symphonies, yes. 17 string quartets. That's why it puzzles me why I've not come across uh, um, Well, yes, there you are, you see. Um, and, and in fact, there's quite a good series of, of symphonies recorded by, by uh, Chandos, fairly recent recordings, um, with Mr. Chmura, who's a rather, rather a good conductor, actually, uh, with the orchestra from Katowice in Poland. Um, but Weinberg was classically somebody who's fallen between two stools, I mean, because he's, he was very vigorously championed by the leading Soviet musicians in his time. So Rostropovich, he wrote Concerto for Rostropovich, and cello sonatas too, I think. Oistrak played his music. Um, Kogan recorded his violin concerto. It was a fabulous piece. Um, Kondrashin recorded several of his symphonies. So did Fedosiev. Uh, I mean, that generation of Soviet artists who knew him and championed him, and above all, Shostakovich himself, of course. I mean, they, they died out. Um, Weinberg spent a long while towards the end of his life being quite ill and was in any case a very, very retiring person. And as the breakup of the Soviet Union happened, a whole different kind of wave of composers who were much more interested in the, in the sort of Western avant-garde emerged and rather left Weinberg behind. And then he was neither Polish 
nor Russian mm. and Jewish. I mean, this problem with Poland, you know, still exists. It's quite interesting in the whole sort of political sense. I mean, I've had really quite intelligent and serious people in Poland, and I've said to them, "Look, come on, we're bringing. We did the Passenger in Warsaw. I said, you know, we're bringing back a major Polish composer, and there are not so many of them. I mean, you know." Um, and they said, "Yes, but you know, to us, he's really a Soviet composer." I said, "Wait a minute, come on, this is incredibly unfair. It was not his choice to flee into the Soviet Union because there were Nazis shooting up at his back." I mean. Uh, uh, you know, he can't be condemned for that, but he is. Let's look at The Passenger, um, based on a semi-autobiographical novel by an Auschwitz survivor, um, Zofia Pospich, um, which of course gives it extraordinary immediacy. And again, her comments about you know when you've been to Auschwitz and met the kind of people that I've met, what else is there to write about in one's life? And that's, it makes one wonder how one can fictionalise something that is still so immediate and so vivid to all of us. Well, she, of course, resisted writing about it for quite a long time. Um, and then there was this incident, which, which has been told many times, about her when she was working as a journalist. She covered the first flights between Warsaw and Paris and was therefore in Paris on the Place de la Concorde and heard a German woman saying, your cat, get him, come on here! And, and, and thought, my God, that's Annalisa France, that's my aufseer, that's my overseer's voice. And sort of turned round in a terrific panic and, and of course it wasn't. But she then began to work out in her mind what she would do if she were put in the position of suddenly encountering Aufseher in France, who's, who's in fact never been discovered by any of the various war crimes commissions. He probably died somewhere at the end of the war. Um, and in effect, she created a radio play and then this novel, um, basically reversing the situation. So it's not her who recognises France, it's France who recognises the woman that she knew in Auschwitz, which I guess is... A, is obviously very autobiographically related to Sophia Posmich, although she uses the name of another prisoner called Marta who was actually in Auschwitz with Posmich and did survive. In fact, went to, I think she's now dead, but she lived in California. Um, so she turned the story around, basically, and, and under the impact of France seeing this woman on this boat where she's going with her husband to Brazil. Her husband is a West German diplomat. And she's so shocked to see this woman who she thought was dead, or thought must be dead, actually, that um, she confesses to her husband what he till then did not know, which was that she was an Aufseherin, an SS Aufseherin in Auschwitz. And then from that moment on, the, the piece goes to and fro between the, her recollections of the, the camp and their attempt to deal with this fact uh, in the lives of this married couple on the boat. It's a powerful premise. Um, how does the woman who was the SS um, guard, how does she... I mean, it raises all kinds of moral questions. Um, what is her stance on the role she played in the concentration camp? 
Well, she defends herself, and she's... I mean, this is interesting now, because this is... You have to remember, this is all invented by Posnich. So, um, I mean, France defends herself quite vigorously. She maintains that she herself never took part in any beating or any cruelty, and that, therefore, the prisoners were very affectionate towards her. And at the same time, she complains in other scenes that, um, despite the fact that she tried to do her best for these people in certain ways, they never showed any gratitude. And why didn't they show any gratitude? And why didn't she realise that she, France, had gone to enormous lengths to allow Marta, for example, to meet her fiancé, who was also in Auschwitz, but obviously in the male camp, on the side of the camp, and not on the female side of the camp. Um, so... I mean, she gives France quite a complex and delusional psychology, actually, in which, um, on the one hand, she says, I was doing my duty for the Fuhrer, and I believed that this was what was the correct thing to do. And on the other side, she expects um, affection or gratitude from the prisoners. Well, that's and is horrified yes. by the way that they, you know, she complains about the level of hatred that she and her colleagues felt from these people. Um, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea that she was able to put herself into that position. But, of course, um, the... I mean, Posmich, and she would herself say this, first of all, she would say, has said, in fact, publicly, that if she had been asked to testify in a court about Alcea in France, she would say that she had behaved extremely correctly and that she knew of no instance when any untoward cruelty or, or, yes, wrong, incorrect behaviour had taken place. Naturally, the whole system is incorrect. But she herself, France, had not ever overstepped that mark, and she would have said that in a court. And the other thing is that, um, of course, what saved Posmich's life uh, during the very long time that she was in Auschwitz, and it was very unusual to survive three years in Auschwitz, of course, she was not Jewish, um, so there was no question of her being uh, gassed or anything like that. Um, and she had the luck, she says, you know, one always tried to stand at the back of the squad, you know, when there were assemblies or whatever. But, um, uh, and on this one particular day, she found herself carelessly manoeuvred into standing in the front row. And on that day, Arsene and France selected her to work in the kitchens, which was a sort of guarantee of at least six months extra life because you were working under a roof that was the most important thing and of course you have the chance to nick little bits of food here and there um, and then later on she became France's accountant in, in the you know, in the whole sort of kitchen area and so actually basically shared a tiny office with her I've, I've seen that office and, and I've seen indeed I've seen the bed where she slept uh, bed it's not a bed at all, sort of wooden planks. Um, so she was very intimately connected with this woman. Um, so in a way, I, I suspect that this psychological picture is probably quite accurate. Yes. Um, and that probably France did indeed expect to be loved, wanted to be loved indeed. And there's an element in which you sense that she's jealous of the fact that this prisoner actually has a fiancé and has a kind of emotional life, which, which France probably doesn't have. 
And so you, then you begin to come near to what I think is absolutely riveting element of the whole thing, which is that because she's been able to perceive France as a woman, as a human being, not as some kind of cartoon Nazi or whatever, but as a real woman, you suddenly realise that we're talking about a, a piece in which two young women, both 18, 19, I think Marta becomes 20 during the piece, um, you know, have this intense power struggle, really. So this, this novel could have been set in Krakow University. Mm. You know, these two young women in a more civilised world, they might have met in some yes. college and, and had an argument about a boyfriend or something, mm. or a power struggle that goes on between young women. But it's just that this power struggle took place in this horrifying yes. ambiance. One, one, one wonders how many examples there were of this kind of interaction between prisoner and, and guard. It's an extraordinary premise. Tell us a little bit about how it sits musically. Um, I mean, this, uh, you know, this close relationship with Shostakovich, um, uh, is there evidence of, of his influence in, in, in the writing? I think you can say in some instances where Weinberg goes into a kind of satirical vein um, and there's a very wonderful little scene which is a slow waltz in fact um, in which three SS officers in the canteen discuss how boring it is being in Auschwitz because there's no club and no cinema and no girls and you know what does one do and and so on. And there, you know, there's this sort of slow waltz going on. And then when they see France, um, there's a little kind of Schubert quote that comes in. And this sort of satirical writing with kind of piccolo and tuba and, and that sort of thing does have a whiff of Shostakovich mm. about it. But in general, I think one must say that um, although he's writing within the same tradition, writing within the sort of Soviet symphonic tradition um, he definitely has his own voice you know, he's, he's not a, a sub-Shostakovich mm. um, and the more one gets to know particularly the symphonies um, the more his individual uh, voice becomes apparent but of course the other, that's another sort of element of this of, of what's happened to a lot of artists who are in that situation of for example, of being banned by the Nazis, and then after the war being, for the second time, banned by the whole sort of modernist yes. uh, conspiracy, really, to, 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 to di dictate musical style. Well, this is so someone like the Goldschmidt, for example, yes. know, or those kind of characters. Yes. Um, and, and, of course, Weinberg, coming 50 years on, into prominence, um, of course, is not a modern composer. He's a composer writing in the, that tradition of Mayakovsky and Prokofiev and, mm -hmm. and, and so on. Um, and, you know, some people have said, oh, well, you know, but this is sort of rather old-fashioned music. Well, of course it's old-fashioned, because it's our fault. Yes. And again, it's not his fault that we yes. didn't find out about him and evaluate him when he was writing this stuff. We're finding out about him 50 years later. Yes, yes. Theatrically, how have, have you managed the piece? Um, uh, do you, w when you, you have a picture in your mind or a concept in your mind, 
Um, how, how set are things when you go into the rehearsal room, or do you like to be very flexible? Obviously, the design is set. Yes, and I should just say a, moment, a word or two about the design, because what happened when I found out about how much music there was of Weibach and became aware of how serious it was as music, um, I'm, I did a whole trip in Moscow going around meeting all these amazing characters from the sort of what you might call the Soviet intelligentsia, I mean that whole generation that is now dying out um, and you know who are living in these incredibly cramped flats filled to the roof with books and, uh, and so that sort of smell of boiled cabbage that seems to pervade um, Soviet apartment blocks um, and one of the people I met was the librettist Medvedev um, who was at that point still very vigorous. He'd had a terrible accident and been left in the street and been knocked down by a car and then misoperated on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that eventually killed him, actually, just before the premiere of The Passenger in Bravians. But at this point, he was still extremely vigorous, especially mentally. And he really outlined to me two very important things. One was the spatial concept of the set that he had in his mind, which actually we've realised pretty accurately, um, because he said, you know, I, I, I saw, imagined this level of the ship floating above, and then these staircases going down into Auschwitz, and so that the characters could move or be, almost be seen to be forced to move in certain directions between one and the other. And that spatial concept we have quite specifically realised, in fact. And the other thing that he said, which is not really indicated in the score, in the libretto anywhere, is that every now and then there is this chorus which sings, rather fragmentedly, I mean, not, not very often. And he said, um, as far as I'm concerned, this chorus is us. Um, this chorus is, the, because there are two time zones in, in, in the piece, obviously the boat in the 60s and the Auschwitz in the 40s, um, and, and this chorus is like you and me looking back into this historic experience and, and sometimes getting very caught up in it and sometimes being angry about it and, and sometimes even almost taking part in it. And that, I think, is very, very important because it, it establishes um, a level of objectivity in the middle of all this incredibly emotional material. The fact that you have a chorus is there almost as a kind of Brechtian device of lookers-on that just help us to distance the whole thing. And uh, it sounds paradoxical, but I think one of the things that makes the whole piece work is that Weinberg himself, at times in the piece, very explicitly steps back as a composer and is very restrained about the way he allows the emotions to be told in very, very simple, sparse musical language, and also thereby creates quite brilliantly the sense of timelessness that is such an element of, of, of prison existence. And, and he's brave enough to do that and allow a lot of time to go by in which one clarinet is playing and then maybe this chorus will very softly have a line of, and weave in with another soloist and then one of the women in the camp who's just sort of trying to say a prayer or something. And he creates this extraordinary collage of, of timeless, 
little fragments of people's histories. And it's brilliantly achieved. I mean, for somebody writing their first opera, quite brilliant. Thanks, David.